Father, this is a joy to gather together. Um, what a blessing to be a part of a church that exalts Christ together. To hear the voices of men and women, boys and girls, singing praises of a God who deserves our worship. With humble hearts, we, with great joy, express these truths to you, Lord. Because you have done what we could not. If it was not for you, Lord, our lives would end in destruction. And so, Lord, we, we have a lot to sing about. We have a lot to listen today about, hear God's word, because you have, you've impacted us, you've changed our lives, you've taken us from dead men and women to alive in Christ. And so, Lord, enrich our lives more and more with your word and cause us to be more like your son. We thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you that our missionaries around the world and many others, Lord, are faithful to this text. They're faithful to the word of God and they're preaching it in their languages and in their cultures. And yet it's the same truth. And it pierces through each and every place where it is proclaimed. And we pray for our missionaries, Lord. Give them favor. Bless their work, Lord. Father, we would... Before we close this prayer, we remember those who are not here today. There are some that are struggling. Some that are in the hospital even now. There's others going through treatment, Lord, and cannot be here, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen them and cause them to know that they are loved by you more than, more than anyone else. And may we share our love with them as well. So, Lord, we close this prayer by lifting up our hearts to you, knowing that you are with us in guiding and directing us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 50 is our text. So Larry Huntsinger read that for us this morning. Appreciate that, Larry. We are working our way through the book of Mark, verse by verse. And here we are now in the middle of this uh, seminary experience. I should say it probably that way. <laughs> he has now moved from working with the masses and all the preaching and teaching and all the healings that he did there, proving who he was and and, and the power and authority that he has to now, in most of the way, he is in this close company with these 12 men. And he is preparing them for one of the greatest things that will ever happen on this earth, the birth of the church. And he's getting them ready, but they have some difficulties. One of the things, you, as you study your Bible, particularly when you look at the disciples here, they're kind of encouraging because they've got lots of problems. <laughs> and you go, well, well he used Peter? He can use me. And he's dealing with these problems one by one. He's getting them ready. And, he, and he's, not, he's not one, as you'll see, to beat around the bush about sin. He doesn't come around and stir his foot in the dirt and say, well, you know, maybe I'd like to talk to you about something. He comes out and says, the stuff will kill you. And it'll destroy the gospel if you don't deal with it. And so here in this text, he begins to take on their pride. And he's going to teach them that pride is a blinding sin. Pride will blind you from the truth. It will rob you from what God desires you to know. It's an open pathway to all kinds of sin. If you and I examine sin that we have fallen into, we can trail it back to the heart of pride. Our pride led us to those choices. And, and so it takes us down a path that we don't want to know. And ultimately, we know that sin's goal is destruction. That's its goal. That's why it was introduced. To destroy things, to kill things, to separate things, to divide things. That's what sin does. And Jesus knows it. And he knows it's in the heart of these 
11 particularly, he knows what Judas is going to do. But he knows that these men are going to go out and proclaim the gospel, and he's dealing with them. I'm sure great texts and Proverbs came to mind to these men, or even to the Lord as he spoke. Proverbs says in 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. You probably learned it this way. Pride goes before a fall, right? Now think about that. Pride, fall. Got it? Pride, then you fall. See, he's warning them of this. And this is what he's after. And pride will distort God's word. It will distort God to you. Pride will make you view God and, and think about God poorly, not biblically. And he wants to, to deal with this. Proverbs 11, chapter 2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Now here is Christ is in this preparation mode. He's taking them through these seminary lessons. And one of the things I thought about this this week as I'm putting this together, I think one of the greatest things that seminary did for me was not make me a great Greek exeget and, and Hebrew and, and learn the theologies and all those. And I'm so grateful for all of that. But seminary crushed my pride. It prepared me to daily handle the word of God. It prepared me to deal with sin in my life and have short accounts so I could stand in front of God's people and say, thus says the word. And so I want you to see that picture. This is maybe not a traditional seminary. and Maybe like ours, we're down the hall right now. Dwight Brown is teaching a church, a church history class to, to a whole pile of people down here on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. It may not look like that, but right now they're in Peter's house encircled around the master teacher. And he's dealing with their sin so that they'll be available for his use. I hope you see that word picture. Look at a couple of thoughts with me this morning. Number one, pride that creates division and the humility that heals it. Pride that creates division and the humility that heals it. John's conscience was clearly disturbed here. As you remember, as you look back just a few verses, they're, they're struggling, right? They, they've had this argument that they didn't know Christ knew was going on. They forget who they're with sometimes. And here's the argument. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And so Christ has dealt with that. And he remembered that, remember that last text, it was two weeks ago. Um, he said, look, you want to be the greatest? Then be the most servant of all. Be the greatest servant of all. See, they had it all wrong. Oh, we're, we have the master. We're with him. The kingdom is going to come. We're going to be on his right and left. We're going to have everything we want and everybody at our beck and call. It's terrible, isn't it? They've been walking with Jesus Christ for at least two and a half years in this text. And Jesus says, that's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. You must be a servant of all. And that was a hard rebuke there. He takes a child, maybe Peter's child, we talk about that, sets him on his knee and begins to teach to them. He says, look, if you receive one like this in my name, you receive me. And this was hard. They're still there. They're in this house. And you get to verse 38, and, and, and Jesus is talking with them. This has been hard. So John kind of looks like John's trying to redirect the conversation. In verse 38, he says to Jesus, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him. Because he was not following us. Uh-oh. The next wave is coming. I think this is what John was saying. Hey, Jesus, we found this guy. He's trying to cast out demons in your name. But he wasn't with us, so we told him to beat it. 
Because we're, we're the 12. See, this is exactly what Jesus has been teaching against. He had been showing them over and over the hierarchy of the Jewish religion at that time. All the, all the scribes and Pharisees that set themselves above everybody else. And here now his own disciples are saying, look, he, he wasn't with us. So we told him to get lost. And the pride began to come out of them. And Jesus wants to deal with this. You say, well, what is this guy doing? I mean, you kind of think about this. There's this guy, right? We saw this guy, this someone casting out demons in your name. Did, was, was that going on? Well, it certainly was. And I can prove it to you why it was going on. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7 real quick. This is a common passage. You know this passage, but I want you to get your finger on it. Matthew chapter 21, verse, excuse me, Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus here speaking, he says, not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember this passage, don't you? Lots of people are going to stand before Jesus. Notice who's the judge. He says in this passage, not everyone who will say to me. He's not saying, not everyone's going to say to God the Father, because he is the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the one who will separate the sheep and the goats. He has always been the head of the church, the head of God's people, and he will judge him. So he says, in this text, notice that not everyone will say to me, Lord, Lord, went into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, this is a, a, remember, this is a lesson against pride and about humility, who will enter, uh, enter into heaven. Now look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we di- did we not prophesy in your name? Now look at this phrase. And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I, Jesus speaking here, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Isn't that interesting? He says there's many trying to cast out names, uh, cast out demons in the name of Jesus. There's many going to do that. And so this is a common practice. There's people that are going to do this both this time and before. One of my favorite examples, and we don't have time to go there, is found in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 is a fascinating text. Paul's ministry is just booming. He's at the school of Tyrannus there, and he's teaching for two years. Ephesus has been planted. There's people coming to him from all over the countries. His, his handkerchief is even going around and healing people because his ministry is so wide. He's training young men there. He's, he's building, uh, helping to be a part of the building of the church. And in the middle of that comes these guys, and they are referred to as the sons of Sceva. And there's seven of them. And they, they proclaim themselves as those who cast out demons. And they attempt by the name in this text to cast out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're saying, I adjure you. And they said this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. They're, they've got an evil spirit in a man and they're, they're trying to call him out. But notice the language that they use. We adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. <laughs> we don't. We just want the power. Because this is really cool when you can say to evil spirits, come out of somebody and they shake around and they fall out and oh, look what we have done. And you know the story here. These seven sons of a chief priest, they go in and they go against a guy 
who's got an evil spirit and the spirit begins to speak and he goes, look, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? <laughs> the Bible says this guy jumps on him, tears, him, tears their clothes off him, almost kills him and they go running. See, this stuff's happening. And, and I think, I wanted to bring all that out because this guy in this text loves the Lord Jesus. And there's a discernment aspect here. And when you love Christ and you are doing things for his glory, you can tell the difference between the sons of, of Skivy or whatever they are, uh, whoever they're doing, you can tell the difference in them. And here Jesus wants to point that out. This man seems to be a true believer. As you turn back to the Mark text and you look with me in verse 39, Jesus says, do not hinder him. He's not like the rest. This man's a true follower. For, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon after to speak evil of me. So though these other leaders would attempt to try to do some kind of miracle, cast out demons and do something, and then in turn reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, no one who follows me could do that. They will always bend their knee to me. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to show his disciples that the elitism of religious leaders of their day, he is now exposing that they have that in their heart. It's easy in these positions. In any position where people want to glorify you. It's happened to a million different pastors. People keep telling them how great they are. and Oh, that's a great message. And that's great. And that's great. And pretty soon people start believing that. And then they, they, the guy thinks, well, maybe I am great. And these people here are below me, and, and uh, they need me, and, and uh, I'm God's servant. And, and that pride begins to well up. And the next thing you know, they're on the news, and they've left their wife with their $54 million jet, and they've gone somewhere else. It just happens all the time. And, and Jesus here is warning of this. He's wanting to see their pride here, their own pride, which Jesus has just exposed in this who is greater conversation, now's back in their front and center. Pride always creates division. It just does. And look, this guy is a follower of me, and you've run him off. And so here Jesus openly rebukes him by saying, this man is one of my followers, and you're hindering him from serving me. A lot of people wonder who this is. There's a strong possibility, some theologians, maybe he's one of John the Baptist's disciples who's now dead and gone. But whoever he is, Jesus knows he's doing his work in his name. And if he's doing his work in his name, he will not speak evil of him. So he's trying to remind these men, look, you're going to have great authority and you're going to have great power as the church births. Do not look down on these people. Do not separate yourself. It is one of the most dangerous things within Christianity. A, a, a hierarchy view of who we are and what we have and look, look what I've learned and what I've done. It divides. We have nothing without him. We have no salvation. We have no knowledge. We have no true worship without him. And so here he's reminding these men who are going to go out and their writings and their teachings are what we study that God inspired through them. He wants them captured by Christ, not captured by themselves. And that's a battle for all of us, isn't it? 
we think of ourselves a lot. In fact, we're always thinking of ourselves. We wake up thinking of ourselves. We're mad when other people aren't thinking of ourselves. It is a battle. And here Jesus knows that those who will teach and lead his people cannot be that way. I think this man probably did not have the maybe spiritual wherewithal the disciples had. They had been walking with Jesus for two and a half years. This man had not. He had probably wrestled with works and some of those things that John maybe did not get to deal with at the level Jesus did. And yet, Jesus says, he's a follower of mine. Do not put him down. See, that's what he's going to do. He's gonna, now he's going to go back to this child on his lap because he's going to show, don't look down at these. <laughs> don't look down at ones that, that maybe don't quite have the understanding that you have because there's a millstone waiting. He's going to get to that. Now, this principle here in verse 40 is, is taught throughout the scriptures. Jesus says this, for he who is not against us is for us. Not against us. Well, what are we, what are we for? Well, we're for Christ. And this man is, is casting out demons in Christ's name. See, Paul picks up on this. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1. Just turn over there real quick with me. Because Paul's got a lot of followers, and, and Paul's in prison, and, and, and why he writes this book, this letter in Philippians, right? And as soon as he goes down, guess who rises up? A bunch of people who want the fame that Paul had. They're after that. Uh, man, hey, he's away. Now's my shot. The starting pitcher's out. I got a shot to go in. <laughs> right? And, and Paul recognizes that. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, some, to be sure, it's quite a statement there, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. How do you know? I think he's saying that, yeah, okay, that's probably a true statement. There's some out there that are using this platform for their own self-indulgence, and there's some probably doing it from a right heart. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love. There's those that love God. They love the gospel. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they're doing it because of that. Verse, middle of verse 16, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than for pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. I know what they're doing. I know this is ultimately an attack against me, which is really an attack against God. But then he says this comment. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. See, Paul wasn't at that meeting in Capernaum in Peter's house, sitting around Jesus with a child on there, but he understood what Jesus was talking about. Our goal is the name of Christ. And we have to be careful because we will look down often on other churches, we'll look down on other believers, because maybe you have arrived or you've studied at some level, and someone maybe doesn't quite understand where you're at, and pride will come in and the gospel will be muddied up. It'll be marred in some way. Love won't be there. But notice what Jesus does. As you go back to our text in verse 41, Jesus does something remarkable here. He wants to teach a contrasting lesson to them. You're so full of pride that you ran this guy off because he wasn't part of your group. I want to teach you a lesson. I want you to understand the 
negative consequences of pride and understand the power of humility. And so he says this in verse 41, for whoever gives a cup of water. Now can you think of any more of a simple ministry than that? Can you think of a more simple ministry than handing somebody something cold to drink? Jesus says this, for whoever uh, gives a cup of water to drink because of your name as of followers of Christ. These men are going to serve you. There's people that are going to come along. You're, God's going to use you in a way you can't even understand at this point. You're, you're going to do things that, that, that you can't imagine. The, the church is going to grow. You're going to preach a sermon, and 3,000 people are going to get saved when you preach that sermon. And somebody's going to hand you a cup of water. And how will you treat them? See what he's doing? He's putting their feet back on the ground. He's putting their feet back on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say he will not lose his reward. He's not less than you. That person receives the crown of righteousness at the end of time when he steps into my presence. He will receive that crown of righteousness which you will receive as well. Don't. Put them down. Brothers and sisters, you have to be so careful with this. Pride divides. Pride destroys. You and I have new life in Christ. And if having a, a, really a second chance at life, right? Our first life was dead and heading for hell. <laughs> the second life is alive. Use it for his glory And he wants these men to serve the Lord with all their strength. There are no small ministries in the service of the king. There's only small-minded people who just want pride and arrogance and want to cause division. Serve the Lord with all you have. I I think possibly that maybe Jesus was thinking about Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4, when he he told the disciples this, the reward of of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. That's the reward. Can you imagine this? They're still standing. They're in this room. They've snuck in there. They didn't want the crowds to see him. Jesus has maybe Peter's child on his lap. They're standing there. They've had this argument about who's greatest, and Jesus is talking about a cup of water, and you better honor that person (laughs) because God loves that. See, pride will rob you of your joy. Pride will rob you of your service. Number two, pride offends while humility builds up. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, you can, he's, got the, he's got the word picture sitting on his lap, but he's referring to possibly the guy who was trying to cast out a demon. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe, to, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he has been cast into the sea. Now, the first statement about a child in verse 37 is fairly pos- uh, positive. Whoever receives one child like this, receives in my name, receives me. Here he talks about the negative aspect about that. You want to offend one of these? <laughs> it's better. It, it's better that you have a millstone. Now, why would he say that? That's, that's an amazing statement. I mean, can, can you think about what this means? I mean, here Jesus has come to fulfill the law. The law has been misused. It's created this hierarchy system, right? 
There's all these levels and pyramid system of religion over everybody. Christ has come to destroy this. He's the fulfillment of the Levitical system. He's the prophet, priest, and king. And he had not come to develop another pyramid system. He came to bring a kingdom of grace. And so he wants them to get this. The finished work of Christ places all people on equal standing. All people who come to Christ are on equal standing. Do you realize that? Many times, I know there's many pastors in this room that would say the exact same thing. We have told our people, I have no greater position than you. I just have a different one. This is what God has called me to do. And he has called you to do what he has called you to do. There is not a lesser or greater position. In Christ, in his finished work, we stand on equal ground. We sit at the same table with the heavenly Father. We are joint heirs together, whether you're a preacher or whatever you do. We stand on the same ground together, brothers and sisters. And there is a stern, stern warning going towards these men. I've come to undo this hierarchy system. And I will be on the top. I will be the head of the church. And I alone will sit there. Notice he uses the word cause to stumble. A scandalon is the Greek word. You can hear what that means, right? This is scandalous. It refers to a crooked stick that's holding up a snare or a trap. It says if you, if, you, if you entrap or if you take this young one or one that would carry a cup of water or one who's trying to do something in my name who's a follower of me and you discourage them and you run them off and, and you let your pride take over and cause them to stumble, it's not good. In fact, it's, not so, it's this bad that, that this millstone would be tied around you, around your neck, and it's better that you be thrown into the sea. Millstone, I don't know if you've ever grind greet, we, uh, grain. We, we used to have a grinder on our ranch, and um, pigs can't just take grain in. They need it ground to, to take it in. So with boys would grind grain. But it was a pain to move. This thing was so stinking heavy because it had a couple stones in it. And, and, and I remember looking at that going, you're, no way, you're, if that thing's around your neck, you're going to the bottom. And, and, and it made me think, Jesus was very, very serious about pride. And he wants it out of our lives. And most likely, when you think about this, one of Peter's kids are sitting on the lap of Jesus and he says, look, you want to offend one of these younger ones in the faith? You want to make yourself out to be greater? You want to exalt yourself over a new believer? You want to make yourself um, above everyone else? I'll tell you what's better than that, a millstone around your neck. That's a stern warning, isn't it? And that's not just for pastors, elders, preachers, teachers. It's for all of us that claim the name of Christ. When you meet another believer, whether he attends our church or someone else, you should greet them with joy. You just met someone that God eternally sought out and made a child of theirs. That's an amazing thing. And whether you're on an airplane or you're overseas or your neighbor moves in and you find out they're a Christian, that is an amazing thing. And look, you, God may have by his grace allowed you to be somewhere where you've studied and learned and you have a good understanding of the gospel and truth. That person's a believer. He's warning these men, don't treat them this way. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me real quick. I, I'm really wanting to proof text this to you this morning. Because there's nothing that brings ministries down is, than pride. It, it hurts ministries. It hurts 
things going forward. And, and I think we're, we've, we're growing and we're working at this and we're learning to love Christ and others more than ourselves. But there's just good warnings in here. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 with me. We urge you, brethren, speaking to the church, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, there is one statement here of taking care of someone who maybe has stepped out of line, but look at most of it. Encourage the faint heart. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. The majority of the command is to help those who are maybe in, in a more difficult situation than you. Maybe they don't have the spiritual wherewithal that God has blessed you with and a church that has taught you and trained you and discipled you. But be patient with them. Help the weak. See that no one repays evil for evil. But always seek after what is good for for one another and for all peoples. Rejoice always. Pride won't let you rejoice in Jesus. It makes you mean. It makes you always on guard looking for something that you got to call out. It's called legalism. That's where pride takes you. And so we learn to say, hey, can I help you? Can I serve you? Can I, can I run down the hall and get you a cold cup of water? Just imagine if we served one another that way. Instead of judging dress and look and all of those things. See, this is what he wanted his own disciples to do. Let the gospel motivate your service. Number three, the seriousness of self-seducing sin. The seriousness of self-seducing sin. Seducing simple souls is disastrous and easy work. A simple soul is one who maybe does not know their Bibles well, but they believe they were a sinner and God saved them. They're easily led astray. They don't, they don't know quite how to defend themselves. They're little lambs. It's easily done. And Jesus is going to say how serious this is, how pride is when you, when you hurt someone and you don't, don't care for them through the gospel. And so he's going to use some very drastic measures here. And, and, and so he's pointing that out. But what he's doing is he's saying, yes, it's easy to, to go after a simple soul like this man who is trying to cast out demons in, in Christ's name. But it's even more difficult to look at your own self-serving soul. It's very difficult to do that. And so he's going to help them right in this moment and give them an absolutely almost grotesque picture of sin. Look at verse 43 with me. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands and go into hell into unquenchable fire. The statement, of course, is hypothetical, but it's powerful. Powerful. No way is Jesus saying to maim yourself. He's making a point here. This is a figure of speech. Cut your hand off. Take necessary steps. The point is to connect to the previous one, right? Don't don't cause people to stumble. Don't don't live in pride. And Christians can cannot lead others to Christ if their own hearts are impure. And here the disciples have had nothing. He wants them, look, you have nothing to offer this younger follower over here. You just ran him off. This is coming from your heart. He picks a hand, I think, not just incidentally. He, I think he's doing it because the hand doesn't act independent. The hand's not 
well, I'm going to do what my hand wants to do. The hand's connected to something. It's connected to your will, which is corrupt by sin. And so he chooses this because it's clear. It's in, instead of offending this little one or, or this one on my lap or this one who was trying to cast these demons out, it's, it's better that you remove this. He's given such a word picture that you stay in this life and you don't enter hell without a hand. Notice he says cut it off. It's an imperative. It means this. Use spiritually unsparing surgery to deal with your pride. Let me say that again. He is saying, use spiritual, unsparingly surgery to deal with your pride. Because pride kills. Kills unity. Kills the clarity of the gospel. And he wants them to deal with it. The command is, of course, figurative, but is the ideal to deal with sin promptly, decisively, and accurately. God, I lied. I had, this cho- I had the choice to say the truth to that person, but I loved myself more, so I said this about myself. Lord, will you forgive me? Cut it off. See, most of the time we say, oh, Lord, forgive us for our sins. What sin? What was it? What did you do? See, he's, he's accurate. It's your hand. It's right here in front of you. This is what you did. Confess it. Repent from it. Turn from it. He's he's helping these disciples. If you don't do this, what do you think the church is going to do? If you stand in the pulpit and never deal with your own sin, never be honest and open about your own struggles, what do you think the church is going to do? Deal with it. Deal with it. He he talks about hell here. And and I, I wrote this in my notes as I pondered this. I said, hell should scare the believer more than the unbeliever. Hell scares me. You know, Jesus talks about hell hell more than anybody else in the scriptures. It's unquenchable fire here. Hell's a terrible alternative. The Greek word is Gehenna here. And it comes from this valley of Hinnom. Hinnom in 2 Kings 23, King Josiah was a man of God and he was cleaning out just the filth of the nation. Moloch, where they burned their babies, their astroths and idols and prostitutes, temple prostitutes. He was cleaning house. <laughs> and he was putting it in this valley and he was burning it. And what the, what the fire didn't consume, he said, let the worms take. And, and Jesus often used that as an example of hell. And he speaks of this, he uses this word more than anybody else. And he says, that's a place where it burns and worms don't rest. And he he preaches that this is a place of future judgment. You see it in verse 48, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. So Jesus is not just saying, hey, this is something you ought to think about taking care of. This is spiritual, accurate surgery that needs to be done in our lives. Am I talking to anybody in here today? Because, I mean, I studied this and I go, God, my pride hurts the gospel at times. Cut it out of me, God. Cut it out. I don't, I don't want it anymore. I, I hope you hear that. And you think about these leaders. These are the leaders of the church. It's going to be birthed in Acts chapter 2. He's preparing for this. He doesn't stop with just the hand. You notice he does the foot as well. Verse 45. 
The evilness of our heart needs a willing subject to take it somewhere. <laughs> so my heart is evil and it wants to go somewhere. Well, guess what? He's got a pair of feet that can take him to it. So Jesus says, cut those off too. Better to go into life without feet than to go into hell with two. Take care of it. What's leading you? I mean, think about this. What's taking you towards sinful pride? What is the motive? What is the operation that's taking you there? Deal with it before God. He doesn't leave off there. The third illustration is the eye, verse 47. You see it there. The eye is the window of the heart. The heart projects its desires through the eyes of the heart and leads the soul towards evil. And the command is the same in each illustration. Drastically deal with it because it's deadly. It's deadly. John, you remember, John's the one. Remember verse 38, John says to his, to, says his teacher, he's trying to kind of, well, that was pretty tough on this whole greater than I I think maybe I'll tell him about this guy we ran off. Maybe that'll get him off our back. Well, John gets this because later, you know this verse, 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you know everybody in hell will not have the love of the Father in them? That's the stark truth. So why do I love the world? It goes on, you can see this sermon of Jesus come out in him. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world's passing away in all of its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. John learned this lesson. James learned it too. James chapter one, verse 13 through 15. He talks about the process of sin. If you go into sin and you don't check your pride and you don't repent before God, sin does what? It takes conception and when it's conceived, it gives birth to death. Sin will kill you. It'll kill your relationships. It'll kill your marriage. It'll kill everything. That's the goal. It's why Satan introduced it in the garden. It would kill their relationship with God. It would kill their relationship with each other. And it eventually killed a brother, didn't it? And it's doing that to this day. It's killing relationships. It's killing people. And so sin is, has to be dealt with. And that's why Jesus is so accurate in this. Remember, this is a seminary lesson. It's a seminary class for the 11 Judas, Judas is going to reject all this, but this is seminary class. Life's more than getting the text right. It's getting your heart right so you can handle the text right. And he's dealing with that. 46, you're probably wondering what 44 and 46 are doing in there. This is a scribal interjection. We believe they're not in the original text. But let me give this guy some credit. Until I, I don't want to rip him apart. Well, if I read this, and I had an opportunity to write something in between a line, I would say, hey, don't sin because the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. And I think that's what this probably the scribe did. And he was just repeating the truths of verse 48. And so you'll see in your Bibles, there's brackets in your Bibles on 44 and 46 because those texts probably aren't in the best original translations that we have. But I think that scribe said, I'm scared. <laughs> I want to be reminded that there's a place called hell. Finally, our last thought here, for self-sacrifice gives you and others a taste of Christ. Self-sacrifice gives you and others a taste of Christ. These last two verses are deemed by many some of the most difficult verses to interpret. However, I think the context reveals it, and they're not as difficult as you may think. Look with me at them. 
Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Hmm. Salt is good. But if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Well, here, as we look at this, salt and fire are connected to Old Old Testament sacrifice. They're always with it. Salt was a preserving agent, and it was also a seasoning agent. We still use it that way. In fact, growing up on the ranch and stuff, when we would kill something, we couldn't get it to refrigeration right away, we rubbed it down with salt, helped preserve it, helped keep flies off of it. And that's what would often happen in these things. It kept mold and flies away and those type of things. It was always introduced with grain and animal sacrifices. And so he's taking them back to this. They would have understood this. These 11 would have looked and said, I get that. And so these, these sacrifices were preserved and they were seasoned and they were consecrated by fire because the grain offerings and the animal offerings went by fire to God. And so this is what he's saying here. Notice in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be seasoned in a way that is, uh, becomes an offering to God and you will be consecrated by fire. And so this is talking about a devotion to God here. And just as salt displayed God's enduring faithfulness, so everyone that claims faith alone in Christ should make their lifetime, now it's a battle, but make their lifetime the pursuit of letting people taste Christ in you. That's the goal. Christ preserves you from the world. And he keeps you a fresh taste of him. Romans chapter 12, this is where Paul says, I urge you, brothers, that you offer your bodies as a living, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Have you been salted for Jesus? What do you taste like when somebody comes around and licks you? (laughs) Do you taste like the world? Do you taste like Gehenna? Or do you taste like Christ? Is he, is he who you're seasoned by? Verse 50 says salt is good. In other words, it's excellent because God is preserving you and sanctifying you and using you to bring up his glory. And, and he goes on, this loss of saltiness. And there's a lot to this, but salt gets mixed with gypsum, especially in the Middle East, and it breaks down that, uh, that, that sodium iodine and all this chlorine that's in there. And it, it breaks down, and, and it does lose it. I remember being in a cabin, hunting cabin one time, old cabin, grabbed some salt to put on something. I was like, this doesn't taste like anything. It lost its, it lost its savoriness. It lost its saltiness. We threw it out. And this is what Jesus is saying here. If you're not connected to me, if you're so caught up in your pride, in your own kingdom, and who's the greatest, and and let's run off these lesser people, you will not taste like me. That's what he's telling them. I I try to get my mind to these guys, and they're standing there. Peter's kid's probably sitting on Jesus' lap, and he is giving them both barrels of seminary class right there. Do you realize what you're headed for? And so, I summed it up this way. When followers of Christ are ready to sacrifice themselves for his glory and his kingdom, all arguments about personal status will be silenced. And the peace of God that stems from genuine gospel community will prevail. What are you holding on to? Anybody white-knuckling something in here? Don't you know you know who I am? Don't treat me that way, woman. Let go. 
It won't taste like Christ. You'll have nothing to offer this world. Pride will destroy it. Father in heaven, we thank you that this morning we can look at this private sermon you gave. This is, this is a sermon you gave to your 12, to 11 men that would go on to preach the gospel and all the world would be affected by it forever. You knew the damage of pride, Lord. You know what it does. It divides. It causes division. It runs off the weak. It only exalts self and does not exalt Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning, starting with me, that you would work your way through the hearts of riverbenders and your spirit would cause us to see pride in ourselves. Pride that's taking us away from what you have for us. Pride that's robbing our joy and our delight in you. Pride of, of, of always falling back that people don't understand what you're going through. Pride seems to sneak in in every area. Lord, we want to taste like you. We want people to know who you are when they interact with us. Lord, are we willing to offer a cup of cold water? And are we willing to recognize the person who does offer that cup of cold water is just as worthy as anyone else in any other ministry? Lord, break our hearts here. Cause Riverbend to be a place where people are humbled before the Lord and they have great joy. And so you will use us for many, many years to come if you tarry, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this message. I needed this, Lord, in my life. I trust your children here today did too, Lord. Let us not walk out of here without reconciling this. In Jesus' name, amen.